I want you to think about something for just a second. Think about a variety of situations that we've all encountered and, 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 and have known the proper responses in each one. For example, when somebody says or does something that is funny, the proper response is obviously to laugh. Now, of course, we're not laughing at them. We're laughing with them always, right? Of course, they may just not be laughing, but we're laughing with them. But the proper response when something is said or done that's funny is to laugh, obviously. It's just natural. You don't have to work at it. It just happens, you know? Think about at a sporting event, any, any kind, whatever your favorite sport may be. If you're watching your team or listening to your team on the radio and something good happens for your team, they score, they win, you hear or see the crowd react. And typically it's cheering, it's standing, it's yelling, it's slapping a high five, it's all the painted faces and bodies going crazy, you know, and, and that's, that's what happened, natural response. You don't have to be taught to do that, it just happens. And, and, and likewise, if I had something I was going to throw at you, which I wouldn't, but if I had something I was going to throw at you, maybe that's why nobody's sitting up here, then, then your response naturally would be either to try to catch it or to dodge it. Uh, that's natural. You think about your reactions. Anything that's come kind of flying at you, you either throw your hands up to catch it or to dodge it or block it or something. And so there, there are things that we just naturally have responses to. Consider the opposite and how ridiculous it would be if those natural responses weren't there. I mean, think just for a second. If you went to a stand-up comedy routine and everybody sat there just like this. Now, sometimes I see your faces on a Sunday morning. That's what it's like. But think about it. It wouldn't make any sense. Some comic is up there and just rattling off as many jokes and monologues as he can think of, and it's just hilarious, and nobody laughs, stone-faced. We'd think something was wrong. We'd think that the crowd was making a joke on the, on the comic. Or think of if you went or saw a sporting event and there was total silence from the crowd. The game's going on. Both teams are scoring. Everybody's dressed up, but there's no response whatsoever. Or if I had something in my hand, I threw it at you, and instead of trying to catch it or dodge it, you just let it hit you. Just, it wouldn't make any sense. I mean, consider, think about it. It's, there, there are natural responses to things in life, and, and as we see that, that, and we'll learn tonight, there, there, are, there is a natural response that the Apostle Paul suggests is the only proper way to respond to God. And what he'll suggest tonight is that this response is what we ought to consider as just being rational and natural. This is the proper way to respond. What he teaches is that the proper response to God is to give him true worship by being a nonconformist. And, and we'll look at that tonight. So the passage that we'll look at in Romans will help us understand what worship is all about, what it, what it looks like, how it appears in our lives, and then I think we'll see the incredible results of what a life of worship is all about. So if you've got your Bible, I'd like for you to turn with me to Romans chapter 12. And uh, we should be able to get these verses on the screen behind me uh, to make sure that you can follow along. If not, you can grab your version and, and, um, and we'll go from there. I want you to look. We'll just look at the first two verses, like I said, of Romans chapter 12. And Paul says this, Therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Now, for some of us, this is a familiar passage of Scripture. 
Maybe you've heard this preached before, or you've read it before, maybe in a Sunday school class or a Bible study, you've gone through this, and, and this is familiar to you. And so for some of us, this will be a really good reminder tonight of what our lives are, are to be about. For others, maybe, maybe we'll see this in a new light. Well, I hadn't thought of that before. Or maybe for the very first time, some of us will encounter this passage, and hopefully it'll, it'll do something to us. And so um, I, I think if we look at just the very first word of this particular verse, in verse 1, it says, therefore. Obviously, this is a transition between what Paul has been talking about and teaching about and what he's going to teach about. He, he sort of breaks from one thought and moves on to another. The first 11 chapters, it's interesting as you, as you look at this, the first 11 chapters of Romans begin with, with Paul describing how evil the Roman world was. And if you know anything about Romans 1, he talks about some pretty seriously evil stuff that was going on. People who basically had just done what they wanted to do. It kind of reminds me of our world today to a, to a large extent. People just do whatever they feel like doing. Kind of, kind of what makes sense to them in the moment. Well, that felt like the right thing to do and so on. And Paul describes that that was the world that he lived in. That was the world that the Romans lived in that he's writing to. And, and, and this was sort of an ever-worsening downward spiral. Here they go down and down and down. And, and Paul, though, before he, before he lets his readers off the hook, reminds them in chapter 3 that everybody has sinned. And so in a sense, though we may not express our evil as much as these Romans did, we're still evil on the inside apart from Jesus Christ. And so he then lays out how can you be saved. And you know some of the Romans road verses probably that Paul leads them down the path of salvation. Here's how it happens. It's by God's grace. You receive him through your faith and you place your trust in him. And so in the first 11 chapters, Paul is talking about that. Chapters 9 through 11, somewhat of a confusing passage to many people. And I have to admit, on, 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 for me as well, to a certain extent. But Paul highlights God's reason for choosing Israel. And then he talks about how Israel rejected Jesus. But then he gives hope for the future restoration of the nation of Israel. And so he includes all that in chapters 1 through 11 to kind of highlight the fact that God has always shown mercy and grace to sinners. Always, over and over. Even an entire nation that rejected the Messiah that he sent. And so the, the first 11 chapters show us that, and so it's kind of in light of all that that Paul begins chapter 12. In light of God's greatness and His mercy and all the things He's done for all these sinful people in spite of and even because of their sin, Paul says, therefore, because of God's mercy, I urge you. It's almost as if you can sense Paul saying, look, I've gone 11 chapters explaining to you how great God is and how great His mercy is and all that He's done for us. So... Here's what you need to do. As a result of that, here's what's got to happen. You almost sense it, that Paul's saying, look, God's mercy demands a response. There's something's got to happen. It just doesn't sit out there. It's got to have some sort of response. And so, of course, you know, as well as I, we all respond in some way to God's mercy. We, we either receive it and, and are granted salvation or we reject it. And so Paul is saying, look, let me, let me tell you what this response ought to be. In the first two, two verses here, he, he sort of says, look, the real response, the only rational, proper response is to respond to God's mercy through true worship. And I'm thankful that Paul, in, in all that, doesn't just leave that dangling out there and say, well, you ought to respond to God by truly worshiping Him. But he gives us the nuts and bolts of it, helping it make it, make it clear for us what that looks like on the inside and the out. And so the overarching principle that I think we take from Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, and we'll, we'll sort of hash this out in just a minute, is this. 
that the proper response to God's mercy is living for Him wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly living for Him, continually changed from the inside out. Some of you have experienced that. Some of you have have lived that way every day of your life since you gave your life to Jesus Christ, just continually changed over and over. God's showing you new things. And so we'll learn from what Paul says that the proper response to God's mercy is wholeheartedly living for Him, continually changed from the inside out. Think about it, what it means to live wholeheartedly for Him. He says, I urge you to present your bodies as a what? Living sacrifice, totally devoted to Him. Think back to the illustration about the people that go to the sporting events. If you've been to any sort of event over the last 10 years or so, you probably have fresh in your mind how easy it is to pick out the true fans of the teams. They are the people who wear the colors. They've got the the jersey on, whatever it is, all the gear. Uh, They are the ones who know something about the players that nobody else seems to know. How on earth they get that information, nobody knows. Because maybe they're the ones calling into the coaches' show Listening to the show, they call in to either complain when things don't go exactly the way they think they ought to, or to, ch- to cheer for the coach and the team because they can do no wrong or whatever it may be. But they're, they're the folks who, they paint their bodies and their faces and they do all this crazy stuff. They would give up useless body parts or organs just to meet the coach of the team. I mean, think about it. These people are devoted to their team. Nothing would stand in their way of cheering and, and making sure their team had their devotion. And, and so... What Paul is, is kind of talking about is the same sort of devotion only directed toward God. And, and we see that, that when he says, present your bodies, he's talking about the whole person, the inside and the out, physically, spiritually, emotionally, mentally, everything we are, everything we do, Paul is saying that's what needs to be presented constantly to God. He wants the inside and the out. Now, being a living sacrifice obviously means that we do things in worship like prayer and praising God and giving Him thanksgiving and the things that we do here at church to sing and to stand and to listen to me ramble for a few minutes and act like we enjoy that and then walk out the door and shake my hand and all of that. We do those outward types of things, but it really implies a whole lot more than that. It implies that we are willing to surrender everything to God, our hopes, our dreams, our plans, the things that we've sort of valued through our life, the things that fulfill us, all the stuff that really gets us going, what we've set our sights on, that's what Paul is saying. Look, all of that is to be surrendered to God. All of that is to be devoted to Him. He gets our best, all of us, all the time. And Paul, as we learn in later writings through his different letters that he wrote, he is not worried just about, though it's primarily about, but not worried just about our posture of a living sacrifice toward God. Paul talks an awful lot about how that plays out and how we treat other people. You think about some of the things he wrote. He said, serve one another in love. Paul said, forgive one another just as Christ has forgiven you. He said, love not just through your words, but through your actions. And he said, look out for the needs of other people. Not just your own needs, but the the needs of other people. Consider others better than yourselves. So Paul is saying, look, as you live as a sacrifice, yes, it's wholehearted devotion to God, but it also plays itself out in how you respond and treat other people. And so... As we make ourselves a living sacrifice, Paul says there in verse 1, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, then we become holy and pleasing to God. The word holy, many of you may know, it means just set apart for God's use. There's something specific that we've been designed to do, much like a tool that has a specific use that the carpenter or whomever knows exactly how to use it. We are to be that way in God's hands. 
And so as a result, we're devoted to him, to his service, hold nothing back. So we confess sin. We're continually cleansed by him so that we're useful. Paul says, and this is interesting, at the end of verse 10, this is your spiritual worship. Some versions say your reasonable service or something along those lines. It just implies this is the only rational thing to do. In view of God's mercies, because of all this stuff I've talked about in the first 11 chapters, the only rational thing to do is to present yourself as a living sacrifice to God. And so it only makes sense, like cheering in a ball game. It only makes sense to respond to God's mercy by living wholeheartedly for Him. So how do we do that? How do I know that my worship is true and pure, that I'm living as a sacrifice for Him? Paul says in verse 2 that we are to be continually changed from the inside out. And that happens in two ways. First, he says, do not be conformed to this age. Here's your excuse to be a nonconformist. I realize that we have some folks who spent some time, some would not like to admit it, but some folks spent some time in the 1960s. Maybe a decade that's a little bit blurry. Maybe a decade you've been trying to block out for a while. Maybe it was a decade that just you just soon never existed. But we had many people in our country during that time whose goal didn't matter what it was to simply be a nonconformist to everything and anything that people were conforming to. And so here's God's reason, God's command for you to be a nonconformist. So if you were a flower child, you ought to be happy. This is your excuse to be anti-establishment right here. The world, the age that we live in, God says, be a nonconformist. That word conform means to be pressed into a mold. It kind of let happen to you what whatever that, that pressing uh, sort of wave of the world wants to happen, just pressing you down and into that. And so Paul says, don't let that happen. It, it also kind of carries the example of, of putting on a mask and being something that you aren't. Paul is sort of to his readers saying, look, take off the mask. Be who you really are. Be who God has made you. Don't, don't, don't be a person who tries to play around with the world. Don't conform to that. And so they, just like us, were not to be a part of the world, not to be in love with the things of the world, not to be consumed with the same desires and pursuits and concerns and worries and goals and all that that everybody else has. Though we live in the world, we are to be completely different than the world. And so Paul says, look, be a nonconformist. And so he says, that happens then by being transformed by the renewing of your mind. You get a picture of this if you think about for just a second the change, the transformation, the metamorphosis that happens between a caterpillar and a butterfly. A caterpillar that once crawled around in the dirt then forms a cocoon and after some struggle, some fighting, busts out of that cocoon and then is something absolutely beautiful. We don't even think caterpillar anymore when we see butterfly. Butterfly is simply a caterpillar with wings, but we don't think that. We think butterfly because it's something totally different. It's been made brand new. It's been completely changed, given a brand new nature, and now instead of crawling around in the dirt, it gets to fly. And Paul sort of hints toward that's what we are as Christians. We don't crawl around in the dirt anymore. We're not bound to a life of sin. We've been set free to fly. And so Paul says, let that transformation happen. And the process by which that, that happens, it would be similar to if someone here at Elm Grove set it on their mind and their goal to turn me into a University of Kentucky fan. It would take a radical transformation. Now, I would ask you that you not pray for that to happen because I really don't want to be against the will of God if that were His will for my life. 
because he and I would have some talks about that because I have absolutely no intention whatsoever of becoming a University of Kentucky fan, much to the dismay of many of the people here. But think about what you'd try to do. You'd probably try to get me, look, just, just put, put a shirt on that's blue and white, okay? Go to a game with me, pay attention, listen to the coach's show, try to understand his philosophy, read the media guide, get to know the players a little bit, let's put you around some other fans. Hey, we're throwing a party for the big game. Why don't you come? We'll get around other fans. What you would constantly try to do is change my mind about the University of Kentucky. You'd try to change my mind on being set on one team and change it to another because you know that me just putting on blue and white doesn't make me a Kentucky fan. But you know when my mind is changed and I think differently, then I react differently to the team. Then I respond differently. Then when Kentucky scores, I don't sit like this. Then I cheer if my mind has been changed. You know if you were to try to change me in that way, you'd have to go at it from my mind. And the same is true in our own lives as Christians. Because what originates in our thoughts eventually, after time, comes out in our actions. And then what what happens in our actions over time becomes our habits. And like it or not, our habits over time become who we are, our character. And so Paul says, look, that transformation has to start at the root in your mind to be changed by God from your mind, which means that when you begin to think differently, you begin to act differently. When you begin to act differently, now you have different habits. When you have different habits, you've got a whole new character. And so Paul is saying, look, Let your mind be renewed. And the way we do that is to saturate our mind with truths and principles from the Bible, to internalize them, to memorize them, to think about them. Then our thoughts will be godly. And as a result, over time, our actions become godly, and over time, our habits then become godly, and then over time, our character becomes godly. And I know that many people in this room have experienced just that. You are not the same person that you used to be because you have allowed your mind to think about God's stuff. And over time, that's changed what you do, your responses. And then over time, that's changed your habits. And over time, that's changed who you are. And so Paul says that's how we are changed from the inside out. And so God's mercy demands a response. And Romans tells us what it ought to be. But before we conclude that Christianity is just some sort of mindless activity that we just give ourselves over to someone who really doesn't care about us, just some higher power, I want you to think about what Paul says in closing that are some great benefits to a life lived this way, being a nonconformist who is truly worshiping God. There are two things he suggests. First is that living wholeheartedly for God pleases Him, pleases God. He says... Live, be a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. The only worship that God accepts is worship that is coming from a pure heart that is totally set on Him. We know that. And because His mercy demands full devotion, when He gets it, He's pleased. There's not a person in this room tonight who would admit, well, I don't care anything about pleasing God. Well, we all want to be in God's favor, certainly. We all want to know, am I pleasing God? Am I doing the right thing? And so when we live a life that is wholeheartedly for God, continually changed from the inside out, God is pleased. You can know 
that no matter what you do for God, who you are is initially what's going to please Him in the first place. And so our living sacrifice, as Paul says, is pleasing to God. And then he closes by saying that living wholeheartedly for God pleases us. He says, Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed, verse 2, by the renewing of your mind, so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. You know there are some people who go their entire lives chasing this mysterious will of God, thinking that, well, if I just read the right book or get around the right people, somehow it will miraculously appear to me. Paul seems to suggest it's not hiding. It's not something that's a wild goose chase that's just out there and maybe only the the really spiritual people like the pastor of the church who sits in his office all day long reading the Bible and that's all he does. Maybe he'll find it and he'll pass it on to the rest of us. Paul's saying, no, no, hold on. It's not hiding. It's not for some spiritual elite. It's for people who've had their minds renewed, who now are thinking differently. Being continually changed from the inside out allows us to see what God's will is. And those who've had their minds renewed can find it and discern it. And I know that regardless of what stage of life you're in, you've got to know what God's will is for you. By having your mind renewed, Paul says that's how you know. That's how you discern it. So God's mercy demands a response. And Paul says the only proper response is by living wholeheartedly for Him, continually changed from the inside out. So be a nonconformist. Give Him all of you. Let Him transform you from the inside out. Fill your mind with truth saturated. And in so doing, you'll please God and you'll please yourself.